No, no, never. You should never wash my feet. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. One of you is going to betray me. What are you, who, who is it? It's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. What are you talking about? You can't go with me now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. You will disown me three times. Peter, what are you, what are you talking about? And you know the way to where I am going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. This little scene that we've got here, of course, uh, talks to us about the upper room where the disciples gathered just a matter of a couple of days before Jesus' crucifixion. And so for us, looking at this scene leading into Easter is the opportunity for us to see this intimate or read about this intimate conversation that Jesus has with his 12 closest friends. And we know that Jesus' ministry here is coming to an end, but the disciples themselves didn't know that. And so we've got to look at this passage of Scripture through the eyes of the disciples and now our eyes as we look at it some 2,000 years later. Let me start with something a little bit different by saying, telling you a little story. When I was, uh, when I was five years old, I lived at Katikati, Cowrie uh, Point, actually. My folks were share milking there uh, on a farm. I'm the oldest in my family, younger brother, younger sister. And at the age of five, my mum had to put me on the bus at 7.30 in the morning to get to school for nine o'clock. So I was at the first part of the bus route, and I think we drove to Auckland and back to go to Katikati School. Well, for my mum, putting her little boy, her cute little boy, (laughs) on the bus was heartbreaking for her. You know, here she was putting me on this bus and trusting me to the bus driver and the well-being, welfare of the school. Uh, For me as a five-year-old, I can remember these trips, but I remember them for probably all the wrong reasons and as much as they were daunting. You know, I was was mum's and dad's little boy, and, uh, you know, had a really nice, safe life on the farm. And here I was sent off to this big school. And, and in that sense, um, I felt probably the most distance that I ever felt from my parents at that tender age of five years old. Now, how many of you here have had similar experiences like that? Yep. Yeah. Some of you sent off. Yeah, my mum used to go to school on a horse. Uh, with her sisters, and they live way in the king country. And you know, when my mum talks about this, we just look at her and go, "Wow, did you know Moses?" You know, at least my, my grandkids think my kids think that way. Her grandparents, her grandkids. So life was different. But the thing that I'm leading to here is that we can feel abandoned at times in our life. And for the disciples, they're coming into a stage now where this revelation of what Jesus is about to do, which includes leaving them, is starting now to become an awareness for them. And so they know that there is a season where they're going to be abandoned by Jesus. And so we pick up this special conversation in the upper room uh, with John's gospel. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him 
because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, this is the inside story of being a Christian. This is the inside truth. This is the inside secret of being a Christian. When people observe the church from the outside, they see a a whole bunch of folks coming to a place like this on a Sunday, doing other activities during the week, confessing Christ as their Lord and Savior. But they will ask and question why it is that we would get together to keep a whole bunch of rules and um, maybe from their perspective, they think we're just uh, judging one another and trying to create a holy club. There's an inside secret that makes this whole faith work. And it's the secret here that uh, Jesus begins in the second sentence here. It says, the world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and, it, and doesn't recognize him. Okay? The world doesn't recognize him. He's talking here about the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to leave the disciples as orphans. So therefore, he says, I'm going to give somebody to you who is going to be able to advocate for you and be the one who brings truth and revelation to you in that process of you outworking your life for me as a follower of Jesus. And these words must have been so profound for the disciples because what he's starting to do, he's starting to shift the nature of the relationship that we have with God from a God who is far in distance to a God who is now deep and personal. The God who lives with us, who advocates for us, and will indeed be in us. And this transformation of this relationship is going to create a whole new way in which the world works and a whole new way in which we view God. And so this morning, we need to look at it from firstly the perspective of the culture of the day. Very simple, not complicated, but uh, Jesus said, I will leave you, I will not leave you as orphans. Now, to be an orphan was a common thing in the life of the early church, just simply because the average age of somebody was no more than 50, 45, 50 when they died, and so therefore very easy to be left as an orphan as a young child. How many of you here have had an orphan experience, raised in in some fashion like an orphan? We had a couple of people in the last service. It's interesting because orphans were very, very common in earlier days. Now, of course, we have uh, a lot more medical, it keeps people alive, and, and we, we try to work hard to keep families together. But to be an orphan was a common challenge faced by many, many people. So when we look at this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, he's talking to them about something that maybe even they themselves could have experienced, to be raised without parents, to be orphans, to be vulnerable, to be isolated, to be dependent upon other people and not being able to advocate for yourself. Because as an orphan, you had no rights, no legal rights. You were just simply uh, dependent upon the welfare or the generosity of others. And so it was a very, very tough, tough gig to be an orphan. But Jesus takes this a little bit further, and he explains to people how being an orphan in this situation, as the disciples will be when Jesus leaves, is going to be compensated by something else. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's have a look at what Jesus says here. He said, Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in the Father, 
and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them, and reveal myself to each of them. Now, these are are very, very powerful words, which, as I've said before, are transforming the dynamics of our relationship with God. The relationship with God prior to this event, prior to Christ dying on the cross, was one of great distance, distance from God because of the fact that sacrifices were made by people who were worshipping God. They would, they would basically make their own way right with God by virtue of slaughtering an animal as a substitute for your sin. It was a messy process, and it took uh, a great deal of, if you like, pomp and ceremony to do all of that. But there was a distance between God and his creation. Now what's happening is this distance is being shortened to non-existent because God says he is going to come and live with us. The beauty of this story that we are seeing is that this transformation is something that everybody is able to tap into. This is the inside secret of being a Christian. The ability to be able to say God lives in me and is personal to me. When we look at these, these words that Jesus uses, we recognize that they are very powerful and very intimate. Jesus says, I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And for this reason, we see that we are being absorbed, if you like, into that trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We recognize God as a community. The Christian God is not a singular uh, uh, like, like a monotheism. It's not a, a single God, one entity. God in himself is a community. God is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you as Christians don't live outside of that relationship. You've been absorbed into it. Does that make sense? It's hard to get your head around, isn't it? But I'll explain a little bit more in the future. And so what we're being told here is that obedience comes out of this love relationship that we have, not not designed by law-keeping, but out of a sense in which we are part of God and this love relationship that we have by the Holy Spirit living within us captivates us, captures us, and motivates our behaviors so that we would love God in the fashion that he desires us to do. It causes us to change. There's a movie back in 1997, and it was interesting, I didn't realize how many years had passed by, but this movie was called As Good As It Gets. Some of you remember that movie? Helen Hunt, Jack Nicholson, uh, Greg Kinnear, three guys, three people played this movie. And the story went a little bit like this. I'll just use their, sta- uh, use their stage names, their, their real names, I should say, to destri- describe this. But Helen Hunt played the, the part of a waitress who had a struggling son who was really unwell. And... Uh, She'd worked in this restaurant for quite some time and become familiar with one of the clients, that being Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson was a romance novelist. Uh, he wrote women's romance novels. And when you saw him, he was the most unlikely person to ever write anything nice because it was just completely out of his character. He was OCD. Uh, he would turn up the restaurant with his own cutlery, clean it, put it down. And the only person who could serve him was Helen Hunt. He used to just nut off completely at everybody else because they did everything wrong. As the story unfolds, 
this unlikely grouping of people, including Helen Hunt and uh, Jack Nicholson, go away to a lake together for a weekend. And it's over this weekend, over dinner, that Jack and Helen are meeting around a table and Jack reveals to Helen his feelings about her. And he says to her, I, I want us to have a future. Is that possible? And she looked at him and thought, just this is bizarre. This guy is just the, a crazy maker. And uh, she said, why is it that I should believe you that you would be caring for me and would see a future for us? And uh, she said, You're on, you, you never take your medication. You're always angry. You do this and you do that. And then she looked at him, and I think it's the line of the movie. She looked at him and said, he looked at her and said, I love you enough to change. I love you enough to change. And what, she referred, what he referred to was that he was taking his meds. <laughs> and he, was, he wasn't so elevated. You know, he was a little bit more human, if you like. But the way that that Hollywood movie portrayed that single line was for me the most powerful line of the whole movie because it talked about a feeling that somebody has which says, I love you enough to be able to change. And this is what obedience looks like in, in, in the New Testament scriptures. It's not an obedience that is demanded. It's an obedience that says, I love you so much that I'm going to change. And, uh, and Jesus is encouraging this level of intimacy, this level of relationship with God that causes us to change. Jesus said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. After the first service this morning, I had a woman come up to me uh, who recently lost her husband, and she was, she was in tears because the illustration I used from that movie, As Good As It Gets, was the illustration of her relationship with her late husband. And uh, she wouldn't mind me sharing this with you, but she said that uh, when she started meeting her husband when they were very young, he was a ratbag up to all sorts of things. Uh, she was a, a good church girl. And uh, when she challenged him about his behavior, he said, I love you enough to change. And those words have been such a powerful part of long, long marriage for her. And her then boyfriend went off to a church, became radically born again, and all the things dropped away that were um, part of his previous life. And they've gone on to raise sons for the Lord and generations now of Christians as a result of that desire to change through love. And so we see this happening with our relationship with God. The more we get to know him, the more we can love him, and the more we love him, the more we desire to change. It's, it just rolls through us in that fashion. Well, one of the challenges that we have when we have a relationship with God is how do we maintain that relationship? We've been given this privileged position of having a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit because Christ is in us, we are in him, and he is in the Father. So we're wrapped up into this community of God. Uh, yet what happens, and Ephesians talks to us about this, when the Apostle Paul says, um, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this again talks about our obedience. 
See, the whole goal of our Christian faith is not to live by a book of laws, but to live by a relationship. It's like, like any healthy marriage will be one where you are learning about each other, knowing more, valuing what they value, appreciating what they appreciate, and therefore not wanting to grieve them. Yeah? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so for Paul, he puts the relationship that we have with God through the Holy Spirit. That's how a relationship relational connection there through the Holy Spirit. He puts that in the same category as a human relationship. The way which we break down our human relationships is when we grieve one another or when we offend one another. So in quite simple terms, how does that work? Well, for me, it's like um, I have a mindset where I'm saying to myself, me and Jesus, we get around together because Christ lives in me. Would Jesus like to go and see the movie that I'm choosing to go and see? No. Jesus didn't want to go see that movie, <laughs> okay? Would Jesus be happy with the way that I was just spoken to somebody else? Hmm, no. And so this is how we measure as to whether we grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, like any other relationship, it'll become weaker when we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, okay? Less connected, just like any friendship you've got when it's not being done well, when you're not considering the other person. Uh, we grieve those people. And the same thing happens with our relationship with the Holy Spirit, is that if we grieve God by our behavior, by our words, by our attitudes, our thinking, uh, we can distance ourselves from God. And, and that's entirely up to us. It's entirely up to us because Christ is willing to make a relationship with us, but the ball falls at our feet in respect to how we treat that relationship. Does it make sense? Yeah, it does, eh? Pretty simple when you think about it, but, um, but we know that we're challenged to change. Jesus said, all this I have spoken while, you, while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is a huge promise that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance for these 12 disciples, things that Jesus has said. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't sit in a meeting with people and then get out of that meeting and remember verbatim what's been said. Can you? Maybe some of you have got photographic memories, you know? Um, it's certainly not me. But here we see the work of the Holy Spirit, even in what we're reading this morning. Uh, John's, John's gospel, particularly this upper room dialogue, is just so... Uh, so detailed, isn't it? The word choice that he uses here to describe this conversation when Jesus is describing the advocate, the Holy Spirit who is coming. And he goes on to talk about so many different things that are uh, so detailed and, and so profound. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus said these words that we're looking at now to encourage the likes of John when they went 50 years later or so to write down this conversation. We're talking decades later, after this conversation took place, John is compelled to record in his gospel uh, the words that Jesus said. Now, I just think this is, this is a miraculous work. This is a divine inspiration happening right in front of us. And it's the very works, words of Jesus itself, himself being recorded for us all those decades later. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit is going to work in you and bring to remembrance the things that I have said. Now, I'm sure 
like me, many of you have been in conversations with people when you're talking about Christian faith or contending for the faith in some fashion. And all of a sudden, scriptures start to sort of fill your mind and your heart and you find yourself speaking with a biblical authority that you didn't really know you carried. In fact, you start thinking, gee, I'm, also, I'm almost worth listening to, you know? And, and, um, and things like this start to occur and you're going, ah, this is what happens when the Holy Spirit is in the conversation. He brings to remembrance the Word of God and reminds you of things that are going to be helpful for the listener to hear, particularly in this area of uh, the revelation that they might need to become a follower of Christ. Have you experienced that before? Yeah? You go, where did that come from? You've got to put it in there first, but you know, once it's in there, sometimes it gets locked away, but it gets brought back to life by the Holy Spirit when we remember what it is that we have had planted within us. Jesus is now on a roll. He's taking us from one subject to another. He's talking about being the advocate, the person who will bring power into your life. But he also talks about something completely different to this power, but perhaps it is a power. It's called peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. There's two different forms of peace in the world. There's a man-made peace, which is essentially the absence of conflict. That's the sort of peace that United Nations are advocating for. That's the sort of peace that a policeman or a policewoman are looking for when they patrol the streets. They're looking for a peace that is a lack of conflict, and they call that peace. But it's not the peace that Jesus describes. You notice in those words there, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Jesus' peace is completely different to the peace of the world. It is a peace that surpasses all understanding, and it can be found in the most difficult and trying of times. I know as a a pastor, I've walked with many of you in difficult circumstances through trial and trauma and death, and there are times and moments during those difficult times when the peace of God will come into a room, come into a person's life, and you just go, wow, where did that come from? This is not making sense because that sort of peace wouldn't exist here in a worldly sense. It's a sovereign and a divine gift from God that comes into your life or into your circumstances because Jesus says, I will give you my peace. And that's very different to the world's peace, isn't it? It's a peace that allows I've seen this many times, a peace that allows a grieving husband or a grieving wife or a grieving parent to share so eloquently at a funeral when you go, I don't know how they do that. It's a peace that allows people to be at somebody's bedside when they're passing away and there's a sort of a powerful, tangible presence of God in the room. I remember many years ago going up to uh, the hospital to visit a young guy who was one of the local teenagers in this community here, young Māori boy, and uh, we'd got to know him, and uh, he was struggling with stomach cancer. Um, There's a number of families in this district who have that. This is part of Stan Walker's testimony, if anybody are up on that. Um, And I remember walking into the room, and uh, he was just surrounded by some of his young friends. It was one of those moments when you feel really, really old. (laughs) And yet, I walk in there and I was physically hit, physically struck 
by the peace of God that was in the room. And uh, this young boy knew that he was going to die, but he also knew where he was going. And that peace was just so tangible and so powerful. You know, you sort of wish you could just take some empty jars and fill it up and take it with you, you know, and, and say, hey, try this, this will work for you. It doesn't work that way, but this young guy loved Jesus. And I, his friends sort of knew that he loved Jesus. They didn't really know him that well, but they were experiencing that peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The peace of Jesus, not the world's peace. And it's completely different. And this is the insider's guide to Christian living, isn't it? This is the stuff you can't describe to your friends when you try to say, oh, look, <clears throat> when I got to know Jesus, it's like my life started again. I was born again. I just had this huge revelation of God's love, God's peace. The grass looked greener. The blue sky looked brighter. The sea sparkled more. The trees waved at me. I've been born again. Truly. Well, that was my experience anyway. Or was that when I met my wife? <laughs> She's not here. You tell her that. The peace of God. The peace of God. Let's have a look now at how the Apostle Paul summarizes, if you like, this conversation that Jesus is having. We often find that Paul and others, a little bit later, take some of these profound words and promises and put them into their own words to describe what is happening here. I think you'll be very impressed with the way Paul puts this. Paul said in Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now these words are just profound. They blow my mind. Now maybe my mind's a bit little and it's easily blown. But this, this set of words here, when you see... Um, in the third, well, it starts in the end of the second sentence there. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two. So when Jesus is describing to the disciples that he lives in the Father, that we live in him and he lives in us, he's describing to us, as Paul uses these words, a whole new humanity, a whole new creation. And this is what it means to be born again, is that our whole dynamic structure has changed as a human being. We're no longer flesh and blood and soul. We're body, soul, and spirit. The Spirit of God living in us. This is the transformation that occurs that causes people to go from darkness to light. This is what happens when you see people just automatically repenting and changing their lifestyle because they are trying to walk in a life of obedience and it's easy for them to drop off the things of the past because they are now a completely new construction, a new dynamic, a whole new humanity we have become. And friends, this is part of the inner secret. This is part of the secret of being a Christian. This is what sustains us through difficult times, is that fact that we are of a different substance. We are made up 
of God's Spirit connecting us and allowing us to be one with Him and with each other, that the body of Christ might thrive in this setting because the Spirit of God lives within each of us. Does that blow your mind? We are a new humanity. A new humanity. We're different to the ways of the world. And this comes about when we're seeking Jesus, not when we're seeking peace. So you can create an artificial peace. You can have peace when you wander off next to the lake shore and look at the beauty. You can create peace when you can look at a whole lot of money in your bank account and you can feel at peace about that. You can have a peace when the kids finally leave home. That's the peace that the world tells you you need. That's the peace that the world says that you deserve. But the peace that Christ gives us comes as a result of us knowing Jesus himself. Peace isn't the absence of something. It's the presence of Jesus. That's the difference between the peace the world gives and the peace that God wants us to have. Peace that Jesus has fills the gaps, fills the heart, fills the mind, overwhelms the sorrow, overwhelms the regret, and secures us for our future. So as Wendy said in her communion message this morning, we can live in the past, the present, and the future simultaneously because that peace surpasses all understanding and gives us confidence that whatever the past has been, it can be healed. Whatever the present is now, it can be tended to, and whatever the future is, we can have hope. That's what is going on in this upper room. So, let's come back to our bus. It's a great bus. It was designed for me because it's special. The question I want to know is, uh, I want you to ask of yourself, rhetorical question, is um, where's your bus going? Are you comfortable in the bus you're in? Are you traveling on your own? Or is the Holy Spirit saying, you need my advocacy, you need my support, you need my authority, you need my power in your life? In these coming weeks, as we look more at what goes on in the upper room, the series is going to go through Easter, I just really want to say to us as a church, look, I want you to be open to welcome more of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. Not for the sake of anything more than just simply to get him to know him better. That's the whole deal. It's simple. The question is, who's driving the bus? I know for me, I'm, I'm, I'm God's little helper. I love getting him out of the driver's seat and saying, I'll take over here, thanks very much. I know what I'm doing. I can help you. Any of you done that before? Yeah, of course, we all do it. That's the tension we live in, is to we allow Christ to, to drive our bus more and more. That comes out of the peace of knowing the Holy Spirit living within you and guiding you. Yeah? So John in the, uh, John in the upper room, as he records these words of Jesus, he doesn't know at this point, but he is going to be chased down He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be intimidated, threatened, imprisoned. 
And for him, when these words are written 50 years later, he will be speaking out of an experience that he has had over a lifetime of understanding God's power and God's presence in his life. And for us, we've got to capture afresh this understanding that what was said in the upper room profoundly changed everything. We are a new creation. There's no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives within me. That's the beauty of what the church is all about, is that we have been grafted into the Trinity, grafted into God's purposes. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, uh, we're told there that even the angels would love to know the things that have been revealed to, to men and women. Even the angels would love to know this stuff. But we, because we're part of this creation of God, because we're part of God himself, essentially, ultimately, we have been given a gift, the ultimate gift of peace. The ultimate gift of peace. Why don't we stand? <clears throat> Today, if you're, if you're feeling like, you know, I'm talking about something that you haven't experienced ever or for a while, I challenge you to, to look through your life and go, hey, um, what is it that I'm doing here? Am I grieving God? Am I grieving God by just a lack of time with him? Like any relationship, it'll get thin. Have I grieved God because of things that I've done and I shouldn't do and I need to know I, know, I know I need to go and put things right? Don't carry those things. For God's sake, don't carry them. Maybe you just need some refreshment in the Lord. Well, I just want to encourage you, if you're looking for that today or in the weeks ahead, um, just make yourself known to us and we would, we would stand with you and pray with you and allow God to become closer to you than he's been. That's, that's the start of this journey of, of living an empowered life. So let me pray for us. God, I thank you that just through some well-chosen words of Jesus, our whole lives are transformed. The whole meaning of life is turned on its head. That we're not orphans, but we are citizens. Citizens of heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of our divine family. And through that, we have new birth. We are a new humanity. Lord, help us to lift our heads high and be reminded of this. Because as we seek what it is that is your will, we know we will seek first your peace the peace that Jesus gives us, that shalom of that highest blessing. And so God, today as we consider these words, we see not only 12 disciples around a table in this room, but we see ourselves there gathered and being spoken to and being made promises that you'll never forsake us. You'll never allow us to be orphans. Lord, allow us to, to believe and appropriate that promise for ourselves. And where there's been distance between us, Lord, where there's been damage done to that relationship, where there's been hurts in the past that have caused us to, to feel that you're not trustworthy, we pray for healing for these things, Lord, that you would draw close as we reach out to you. So God, help us. Help us to receive what it is that you've promised. You're a generous God. You give generously. Help us to trust you in this that we might be that new creation. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.